one of the things that continues, I think, to fascinate us, and, and we're not alone, I think, is the moment of, of great growth in L.A. was around how it projected itself as a city that was much larger than it, it was physically. There was a kind of L.A. of the imagination that obviously through film um, became internationally recognized. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Marian Weiss and Michael Manfredi, principals and founders of Weiss Manfredi Architecture, Landscape, Urbanism. We're here to discuss their practice and their work on the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum in Los Angeles. Mary and Michael, welcome. Thank Good you, afternoon. Charles. Uh, terrific to be able to join you today. It's lovely to see you both. Um, so over the course of the past two decades, you know, I think Weissman Frady has come to be known for, among many other things, uh, producing a, an astonishing string of cultural projects, museums, among other things, um, in which, you know, you're identity as architects, the, the idea of working through the, the medium of architecture is quite central. But beyond just, just that, these are projects that push or pull against two seemingly contradictory uh, ends in contemporary culture. On the one hand, these are projects that most often instill through cultural projects, a kind of urbanity, or let's say a, an idea about how to engage with the city or city making on the one hand. And at the same time, many of these projects um, are also quite clearly uh, driven by a desire for a kind of ecological renewal and environmental restoration. And, and in that regard, I, you know, I think of your practice as in some ways, maybe let's say transcending uh, architecture, that's clearly you know the idea in part behind the way in which you set up your practice. Um, just about a year ago, um, your firm was premiated with the competition win for the La Brea Tar Pits and Museum in Los Angeles. Um, tell us about that project and where it is uh, in its development. Uh, the La Brea Tar Pits sort of reimagining what that primordial archeological paleontological foundation of LA could become. Uh, as a as a renewed idea is extraordinary because Hancock Park, you know, is a, a large park that has many cultural institutions. So this crazy juxtaposition of this paleontological past and a city in the city of Los Angeles, which has always been in a hurry to both invent its future and create fictional futures for the world to consume, that that's about as provocative as uh, an idea as you could imagine, right on Wilshire Boulevard, known as the Miracle Mile. Yeah, in a way, it, it, the thing that got us extremely excited about the project is that uh, it was so improbable. Here was a project that was ostensibly about expanding the museum in the context of a site that uh, very much is an active paleontological research site. So there's a kind of research component occurring uh, right outside the museum in real time. And it also uh, is home to Hancock Park. And as many of us know LA um, is in some ways um, very, very low percentage of open space per capita. So this little bit of green right in the middle of the city on Wilshire is extraordinarily important, both for ecological reasons, social reasons, and for cultural reasons, as Mary mentioned, this is kind of a, a nexus of a number of different institutions. So it was in a way a, a program and a site that defied any kind of very clear agenda and defied any very clear 
definitions of what it was like. Uh, is it museum? Is it open space? Is it re sort of uh, reinventing uh, research? Uh, and is it a piece of urban design? In fact, it's all of those things. Well, it's true that um, I think in your, your practice, both in its, in its formation, uh, in publication, but also in much of its built work, as they say, aspires to really a kind of urbanity, a kind of urban scale. And clearly with the Liberate Project, there is a, a scale, there's a dimension, but also there's an imbrication of these various ingredients. Now, how is it that the museum and the scientific site became connected to Hancock Park? I mean, just from the point of view of project formation, that's not the most common formulation in my experience. Well, the interesting thing was that Hancock committed the entire landscape terrain of Hancock Park to the city with the fundamental commitment that the Museum of Natural History ultimately took over this role, which is that all the paleontological discoveries would be enduring and permanent on that site and made available to the public. What emerged with other cultural institutions joining that constellation of destinations, if you will, followed. So it was, in fact, truly foundational in all its improbability. It was foundational that that connection of its paleontological revelations and its idea of it being a public destination were the very foundation of that setting. Uh, Charles, initially, there's a strong economic engine because uh, even with Native peoples, that sort of the tar was used uh, in construction of canoes, shelters, then became instrumental to the development of LA, I mean, the whole center of petroleum and petroleum products um, is what uh, LA was about. So in some ways it was a kind of economic agenda, but I think as the 19th century, the kind of development of the idea of natural history as a science um, emerged, I think there was a kind of philanthropic agenda that um, became uh, important to Hancock and hence his idea of requesting this land to the city. You've referred to the tar pits as uh, as magical. What do you find magical about tar? <laughs> Just to contextualize it, to move back a little bit, I'm a native of California, and my mother, whose background is geography and geology, used to drag all of us girls uh, with my father in the back of a station wagon to L.A., and the first stop was always celebrate tar pits. So the thing that we were fascinated with was this strange stuff that was bubbling away, and it smelled um, and you could kind of, as a kid, joke about the fact that this was a, a cultural destination that smelled. And so this kind of provocation that something so fundamentally antithetical to what a museum was supposed to be, you know, what a cultural destination was supposed to be, it was, it was working so hard to be anything but an exclusive and excluding place because of this very fact that something was bubbling up from underneath. And when we think about that, and then you think about LA producing these fictional futures that take ingredients that have never existed and put them together. You know, we think about uh, research that's going on 363 days a year on site. We think about a museum that's concealed under a berm that could in fact have a, a cut through it where that collection could really grow and be revealed to a public. And then edges at Wilshire Boulevard that have been all fenced off from an invitation to pull people in it's the simultaneity of these things that have nothing to do with each other that are the very thing that get us incredibly excited about the project. Actually, you asked about uh, what makes it magical, and maybe it's, it's the improbability of this material getting stuck to everything that it touches. And I think what 
was apparent to us is the hundreds of thousands of fossils that are coming out of the tar pits. And um, I think there's also the kind of, everybody thinks of the tar pits as, you know, mastodons and uh, saber-toothed lions. Uh, but the reality is that the Pleistocene era was the last era of intense climate change. So what's magical now is that the discovery, often through uh, microfossils, uh, the discovery of how adaptation occurred and didn't occur uh, is extraordinarily relevant. So that kind of magic now, the sort of stories being told, are uh, incredibly uh, uh, apt. I mean, I think many of us have this uh, image. It's, I think it's in the cultural imaginary of Southern California as a site of oil extraction, right? From the kind of early economy, you know, the, the still operating, you know, gas and oil wells that you'll see in Southern California. And the idea of the tar pits, a place that kind of bridges that kind of section, the geological section and presences itself, right? Clearly, you know, Mary, this has had an impact in your childhood and uh, generations of school children and not to mention ongoing science. So it's a fascinating site. Michael, you mentioned indigenous populations, and I, I want to ask you about that. Now, clearly, this is a site that's had layers and layers of human occupation, certainly pre-Columbian human occupation. And I wonder to what extent is it in the museum's kind of mandate to distinguish those histories? To what extent is the museum able to address kind of human occupation, or, or is it purely the kind of archaeological project of the deep history? Well, I think that, that the way hunting happened, the way uh, occasionally the, the sort of pits would be... Um, a site for finding animals of all sorts. Um, I think that is part of a history that is probably a little bit more, uh, is, is being foregrounded with a little bit more care now because of the realization that it's not just uh, the ancient history of mastodons, but it's a more recent history of human intervention um, in these areas, uh, exploitation, even uh, two, 3,000 years ago of the use of tar. So. I think there's a, a much richer idea about the multiple histories that uh, have uh, left their, their tar prints, so to speak, on this site. And, and also, Charles, you've asked whether it tracks or reveals a kind of connection with the indigenous populations. And the answer is that with the exception of Liberia woman, there were no um, humans found uh, in, in the tar pits. And so the focus really has been with the, uh, primarily the Pleistocene era, that uh, revelation, if you will, of these incredible uh, beings, uh, the, the, these huge fossils that have been discovered that have revealed, you know, thousands of dire wolves and, you know, uh, saber-toothed cats, we've been corrected, it's not saber-toothed tigers, saber-toothed cats and mammoths and mastodons. That, that is the primary large-scale uh, sort of animals that they found, but they've also found, as Michael mentioned, a tremendous amount of paleobotanical uh, fossils that with current technologies have been able to really create a fine-grained illumination of climate change, and as Michael said, adaptation. And that's really uh, one of the most contemporary and urgent gifts of what this uh, museum does is that the Page Museum pioneered the idea of visible research within a museum. And they're now actually now doing chapter two, not only capturing that, and we're capturing together a revelation of that research in these labs, but also pioneering the revelation of the collections. And so those collections are being made more public and they're fabulous. So making visible to the community of Los Angeles and the world at large, the, the, 
the evidence of climate change so that we can understand it in new terms is a huge gift uh, to this project as it, as it unfolds now. The Page Museum being the extant built museum building on site, uh, you're saying this was the first institution to kind of, you know, really debut the thing that is now seeming obligatory, which is to kind of reveal the methods behind the curtain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and were copied by many, um, inspired many others to do that. But what's so unique, Charles, is the museum is the site in a way. Um, other museums kind of import other fossils or objects, archaeological objects. Here, quite literally, uh, what is coming out of the ground is revealed, it's tested, it's researched, it's analyzed, and um, that process is made visible. So it's, it's a rather unique institution. We can't think of another institution like it in the middle of a major metropolis like L.A. It's the largest urban paleontological site in the world. And people at Wilshire Boulevard might not know that. And so this is now an incredible opportunity. We call the scheme Loops and Lenses because it really is truly creating this kind of triple Mobius that draws people in from the edges of the city and in a sense allows you to enter anywhere. So whether it's this kind of fictional world with the mammoths and mastodons being you know, represented as being stuck in the car, back to the lake pit, or pulling into a cultural center where recreation can still occur, or to actually following tracking the paleontologists who are literally at work. I mean, they close down maybe two days a year. That's it. You know, to pull all these things together allows anybody to enter anywhere. And that's what's so exciting about the project for us. And these loops, the circulatory kind of framework, the kind of structuring device of the of the overall you know plan, um, doesn't presume we're all arriving by automobile any longer. <laughs> no, in fact, one of the kind of gifts uh, of the timing of this project is that it will coincide with the opening of the major subway stop, Purple Line. Um, Purple Line. There's also a, a very very uh, active number of bus stops uh, there. L.A. is increasingly becoming aware of the possibility of bicycles. So I think uh, we're, we're seeing a multimodal approach. And I think what we love about the project, like some of our other projects, is you can't quite decide whether it's a piece of urban design, whether it's a piece of landscape, a piece of architecture. It's probably a little bit of all of them. Um, but the transportation mode and its presence on Wilshire, I think, is one of the sort of distinguishing features. One of the most fascinating aspects for me of the project as it's in formation, you know, we've, we've seen that we've seen the drawings. We're all looking forward to experiencing it has to do with the team that you formed to conceive uh, the project, both to win the, win the commission, but also to, to mobilize the work. I think it's, you know, it's something that I've come to think of as characteristic of Weissman, Frady and the, and the competition wins that you've enjoyed in which you're often conceiving of a team that exceeds, you know, the kind of conventional categories or typologies of professional practice. I'd like to just chat with you a little bit about like how you think about team formation in this case, in addition to your in-house capacity at Weissman Frady, uh, you're working with uh, graphic designer, Michael Beirut, Pentagram, of course, you know, incredible, you know, body of work that Beirut brings. An extraordinary team, including, you know, paleobotanist, Dr. Carol Gee, artist, Mark Dion, Emmy Award-winning director and experiential designer Karen Fong of Creative, uh, Creative Director at Imaginary Forces. It's an extraordinarily diverse array of talent. Uh, there are, on, on the one hand, some categories, presumably, that you're filling out in-house at Weissman Frady. There are also some extraordinary in, just individuals on that list. So, so tell us about how you think about organizing a team for an opportunity like this. 
you know, it's so interesting. The first thing that we think about when we're entering a competition is, what are the questions that it's asking and who would we love to have a conversation with about it? And that's kind of independent of saying, let's hit the check marks of civil engineer, the geotechnical, and all the things that we know are more typical. And certainly in this case, uh, we were so excited to be able to uh, work with the group that you mentioned. And, you know, you think about somebody like Mark Dion, who's, as an artist, he's really pioneered the questions of natural history of Karen Fong, who's, you know, the idea of storytelling through film is is phenomenal. Because it wasn't just the questions that were asked, but it was also, we sat down, what are the questions that aren't being asked? And of course, that's a whole nother discussion. But one of the questions that wasn't being asked is the role of of film, of storytelling, the role that uh, artists are starting to think about that go beyond what's inside a museum or interested in science. So in some quite, in some ways, it was the question not asked. You know, the competition brief was, was you know, pretty dry and, you know, you need the usual engineers to uh, the team, uh, give it kind of a, a, a sort of gravitas. But I think uh, we were intrigued with the fantasy of L.A. as much as the kind of... Uh, hidden ecological agendas. And by the way, the other person who came on the team not mentioned was Robert Perry, who's uh, I think a, an incredible uh, horticulturalist, uh, landscape architect, was very involved in drought tolerant planting. So it was an opportunity to think both paleontologically through Carol Gee, and then also the contemporary condition of a very dry and very hot LA climate through Robert Perry. So those extremes, I think, weren't initially asked in the competition brief. The other Thing that became pretty apparent during uh, several interviews because the competition was also woven or uh, the, the, the process uh, including the competition um, included several interviews was the kind of enthusiasm on the part of the kind of leadership at La Brea and you know it was kind of an unusual combination of uh, scientists real scientists as well as um, philanthropists and folks with a very deep interest in um, the urban condition uh, of LA. Um, La Brea, as you know, has an incredibly active educational program. Just about every kid in Los Angeles visits uh, the La Brea Tar Pits. So there was a very expansive idea about what a museum could do um, and what research could mean to an extremely diverse population. So uh, Dr. Madison Varga was instrumental, uh, I think, in encouraging uh, every team member uh, to be as expansive as possible in terms of the agenda. So there's a very, very strong, obviously, an agenda about climate change, but also an agenda about the sociology of this particular setting in this particular location. It's also good to know that we've been really benefiting from the, the incredible scientific education and research team that we have uh, you know, under Edison Vargas' leadership their ambitions for what they are trying to make visible and public in conjunction with the high level of science that's being advanced is amazing. And, you know, there's been incredible nuances and discoveries through those conversations as well. And the interesting thing about Carol uh, Yee, for instance, is that she was working as an intern in paleobotany at the Librea Tar Pits as she, you know, as she was emerging later on getting her PhD and then becoming a faculty member in Bonn. So we've got this incredible arc of what it was uh, to 
have a scientist actually be able to talk to other scientists uh, within our team. It was fantastic. Has working with a natural history museum been different than your previous cultural projects? I mean, of course, you've had other, you know, entanglements between science and uh, cultural production or, or museum work. Think of the Museum of the Earth, Ithaca, or think of the Brooklyn Botanical Garden. Of course, this is something that you've built as a kind of metier of your practice. But is working with the Natural History Museum as a client unique in your experience? What's very unique is that they are a county museum. So that means that they answer to a lot of priorities and values that need to be captured within the setting. And Hancock Park is also a public park. So the, the kind of number of aegises that are layered in in terms of values, priorities, uh, make it important to recognize the kind of pressing agendas uh, that cross urban and museum functions. Yeah, I think the one thing actually that all of those projects share, particularly the Brooklyn Botanic Garden and La Brea is up, they're smack in the middle of a city and they recognize their role is not only to educate, but also to provide valuable public space. And while you could say, well, the Brooklyn Botanic Garden is an institution, everything they've been doing, probably since their inception, in fact, has been targeted toward their role in making New York a more livable city. So to that extent, there's an extraordinary public agenda. And I think uh, we felt that there was similarly a, a very strong public agenda to the La Brea um, community of, of scientists. It wasn't just uh, the idea of doing research and finding an architecture that could make that research happen more effortlessly. It was uh, the kind of stories being told and the places that would be made, regardless of whether someone wanted to go into the Page Museum. There's a kind of a very strong sense of a social agenda that is similar to, to and common to both of those institutions. It's a part of, I think, Michael, part of what's so exciting for me about the project is the notion that, you know, um, on the one hand, these are public institutions, public space, you know, full stop without disclaimers in the way that we've become so used to having, you know, commas and semicolons and well, not on Thursdays. Uh, and at the same moment, it's a it's a project which is really characterized by its um, by its breadth, right? Its scope, uh, its integration is another benefit. It strikes me of this of this approach, and it's quite distinct, as you say, as a site of active, you know, ongoing scientific knowledge production, uh, even compared to you know other museum projects that you've done or a botanical garden, which gathers its collection and cultivates that collection, but is really in the business of acquisition, let's say, as opposed to production. What's another aspect about the La Brea Tar Pits is that shade equity is something that we've really been learning about simultaneously. You've asked what makes us unique. You know, LA is hotter and drier than many cities in the country. And if there's any city that has to lead the way in terms of what uh, our rising temperatures mean, LA needs to. So we've been fortunate to be able to bring those discussions of the kind of public realm into, you know, a different, a different kind of lens. And so the kind of density of trees that we're planting, the densities of trellises, if you will, or a canopy that has a mesh that's mitigating sun from the very edges of the site all the way to the center. You know, these are parts of the kinds of liminal linkages between how the public can be invited and welcomed. And those very same shade strategies are also shading the paleobotanical researchers who are underground and literally working constantly, often under the hot sun. And now that 
layer that uh, connects both of them, you know, not just the paths, but also the aerial condition of the canopy, creates a common thread between those who do the research and those who watch and observe uh, and are, are invited in to join that conversation. So, you know, these kinds of uh, role switching uh, can happen in these environments uh, when the boundaries are, are, are so loose and open-ended. Your practice is New York-based. You've, of course, worked you know, across the country and, and across North America. Are there aspects of working in Southern California in terms of the climate or response to environment that are, have changed the way that you approach things? You yourself are a native Californian. Uh, is this in some ways a project about coming home for you? It, you know, it definitely feels like it's, it's coming home and it, it, it's a flashback in many ways, but also for Michael, too. You know, our... In a sense, our foundations have to do with, you know, Michael growing up in Rome with the kind of archaeological sites and, you know, un unfolding those mine of this, you know, being the daughter of a geographer and a geologist. You know, I think that that it's coming home to kind of things we were raised to value. And California certainly is a place that those values are are hidden, maybe, and need to be brought to the foreground. And this project is one that is truly inverting the equation of what's foregrounded. To kind of uh, play off of Marion's um, uh, intro, uh, when I was a kid, uh, my mother would take me to the Roman Forum where they were actually digging, actively digging. And, you know, when you're five, six-year-old, you easily strike up a conversation, go down into an archaeological pit and see things that an adult might not be able to see. But I think that was something that was... Um, incredibly formative and triggered a whole host of memories uh, when we were going down into one of the pits in La Brea. But I think getting back to your question, um, Charles, I think issues of transportation are, are huge and looming in LA, and I think there are measures that are trying to be corrective. But um, to get back to this point, if uh, you're a person and you can't afford Uber or don't have a car, you're gonna be standing waiting for a bus probably uh, up to an hour in the hot sun. So what we're trying to do is kind of stretch the edges of our site to take in those sidewalks and provide a kind of a, a modicum of relief and generosity um, so that the edges of the project become as urban and um, climatologically sensitive as we could possibly make them. And that's something that wouldn't happen in another city. I think LA is statistically on record for being one of the most extreme in terms of heat. And it's not likely to change, it's likely to accelerate. It's true. I also, it's, I had the sense I have uh, from looking at the work, but also this conversation is that it's a, it's a, it's a different form of urbanity in Los Angeles, right? It, both in terms of what's the, in the context that you're responding to, but also how the project responds, right? In that sense, I wonder if, if your um, if your experience in Los Angeles allows you to think differently about space there than you would in in let's say you know a project in uh, Brooklyn. What's very clear about LA is, in many ways, if you took the word LA away, you could probably identify twenty or thirty cities, each one independent and each one with its own kind of locust heart. And so, the Wilshire Boulevard is a thread in many ways. Is was a a kind of a marketing idea from gosh knows how many decades ago to suggest that there was a thread that could connect. And yet what's truly happening right now is those threads are getting closer and closer together. And those locusts uh, within the city, those low, you know, those focused areas, which are urban in nature are 
seem to thread together in something that you could say begins to approximate some form of urbanity. And our feeling is in many ways, so much of what happens in LA is one thing after another, and it's beginning to feel, and we hope our project has something to do with it, maybe one thing because of another. And that sense of interaction and connectivity that we're trying to catalyze with our larger stretch of the site through those loops is to begin to create a signature of that extension to larger systems that exist beyond the site. Yeah, one of the things that continues, I think, to fascinate us, and, and we're not alone, I think, is the moment of, of great growth in LA was around how it projected itself as a city that was much larger than it, it, it was physically. There was a kind of LA of the imagination that obviously through film um, became internationally recognized. Yet at the same time, it's extremely local. And I would maybe argue uh, to Marion's point is that they're not many cities, but many villages. Um, Koreatown has a very, very clear and compact idea that's operating both physically, but also socially, culturally, economically. That's only one of them, uh, Brentwood. There are others that are all incredibly different and in some ways very proud of their own uniqueness. Uh, so on one hand, the sort of the myth of L.A. is this kind of, you know, uh, something that has come out of movies, sci-fi, you know, Blade Runner, all those sorts of things that are some, in some cases very apocalyptic. Um, but it's also uh, what we found uh, extremely place specific. And in some ways, maybe because of the challenges of getting around by car, the, uh, the specificity of each place has become uh, actually in some ways more local. So there's this kind of irony that's operating um, right now that makes LA uh, extremely challenging, but extremely interesting right. at the urban scale. LA is super, is super interesting, and it's anything but homogenous. And that's where, for us, it's one of the most vibrant cities in our country because it's forever redefining itself. And if anything, you could say the territorial sprawl is now beginning to find nodes of intensification and the expansion of the, the network of subsurface uh, movement is finally actually connecting those threads in really interesting ways. Our city used to be very remote. Now it feels very central. I want to ask about the kind of conception of your firm, right? So you've been at this for a couple of decades now, producing some extraordinary, extraordinary projects. And in the um, past decades, producing with the Museum of the Earth and, of course, Seattle Art Museum, Olympic Sculpture Park, um, Brooklyn Botanic Garden Visitor Center, a string of projects that are by now evidently engaging in these two tensions. On the one hand, producing a kind of urbanity, like producing a kind of publicness or point of view about the city on the one hand but also like consistently, I would say steadfastly integrating landscape as a medium. And that's something that obviously is not coincidental. It's happening to be central to this particular project in Los Angeles, but it now clearly two decades on, you can see is really a, a tendency in the firm. Was that something that you were conscious of when you were forming the practice? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it actually, uh, and we can talk a little bit about how, how we both grew up, because I think in some ways that had a, a very deep impact on both of us individually, but also how we practiced. I grew up in Rome, and I think wandering around places like the Villa Giulia as a kid, I never felt like I was either in the garden or in the villa. The two seemed inextricably, inextricably linked and indescribable in a way. And I think that, that memory uh, is still deeply embedded in, in, in my DNA. I know 
Marion talks lovingly about the hills that she grew up in. I, I think that probably she can touch on that as well. But I think when we started our practice, we were dissatisfied with the idea of the kind of idea of, of architecture as a sculptural object, which at the time was very, very important, the idea of getting it published just perfectly, getting it photographed perfectly. And it, for us, it missed a kind of larger agenda. And fortunately, that was just also the beginning of kind of a, a much richer and much more uh, direct um, engagement with environmental issues started to come to the fore. So I think these forces work both internally and externally to kind of drive us to create a practice that uh, was not solely about making beautiful buildings, although that's not a bad thing either. And, and Charles, what's super interesting is, you know, certainly when we were being educated, Michael referred to these, the kind of perfect photograph that might manage to make its way onto magazine cover. And, and there was this frustration that we had, which was this fetishistic interest in polishing the top of the architectural pyramid when in many ways we thought that was a little bit like shifting gears on the Titanic, if the whole terrain, the subsurface engagement with the city and with all the other systems of the landscape and the environment and the ecology and the kind of social dimensions of what makes something come to life were abandoned or in a sense uh, designated for others to give life to, then one would be really missing the gift of what design could offer uh, in the public realm. And so we started to enter competitions that asked broader questions, in some cases, not really knowing, like in the case of the Seattle Art Museum, they invited artists or architects or landscape architects, each separately to be leads for it. You know, their question was something larger than they knew anybody could answer through a single lens, and they, they'd put it up to any lens. And so those were the kinds of uh, competitions uh, that drew our attention, and we were fortunate enough to win enough of them that that kind of value that we have such conviction about in our work is something now that clients can see that we value so that uh, we're able to find some of those projects, not just through, you know, national, international competitions, but also through commissions. And have you found that that kind of appetite, that kind of desire is increasingly evident? I mean, I would imagine, you know, when you, when you founded the practice, when you were getting started, that that was more, you know, aspirational to sort of look for, to find out, to seek out projects that were looking for that kind of integration of landscape and, and environment. But, but at the same time, I'm assuming that initially it was, uh, it was harder to find them. Are you finding them more, more often uh, in practice these days? We are, but I think, Charles, I think there's still a, a very, very deeply rooted sense of disciplinary boundaries that is a function of economics. It's a function of how our legal system is set up. And um, sadly, we found that those boundaries are still very, very hard to uh, engage in fruitful ways. So I think part of it is we enter projects that can't be defined very cleanly as architecture or engineering or landscape. Um, where those boundaries are uh, perhaps a little more porous and um, easier to break through. Um, so in some ways, uh, yes, I think uh, certainly educationally, um, every institution that we've taught in that we are currently uh, working in is realizing that the problems that we're facing are much larger and defy a kind of clear single um, narrative and singular solution. Uh, so certainly uh, pedagogically, there's a much richer approach appreciation for the breadth of uh, 
of the challenges that defy a kind of a, a singular solution. But uh, there, there's still, I think, uh, a huge set of administrative boundaries that need to be dealt with in, in hopefully creative and inventive ways because they're quite significant. It's well put. I mean, the challenges of the built environment rarely correspond to those professional or disciplinary boundaries. And at the same time, we find them, you know, perennially reinforced, you know, d- defended uh, explicitly or implicitly in a variety of ways. I mean, it strikes me that among the benefits of the approach that you've taken in practice, uh, uh, among the many benefits, you know, socially and environmentally, we could say, has to do with the kind of the clarity of a profile or a position of your work, right? So on, on the one hand, you know, I, th- I think of Weissman Freddy as a firm that's come up, come of age, really kind of matured um, in a phase and era that we we might think of as the kind of renaissance of landscape architecture, let's say, the recovery, the renewal. Uh, and I think, you know, your work has really occupied a particular point of view or profile in that recovery. What's been interesting to me is to see the range of horticulturists, botanists, you know, scientists that you've collaborated with, not just at La Brea, but across a range of projects. And in some ways, you know, the idea of landscape architecture thinking and skill set being integrated into the practice of an architect at a high level strikes me as one of the great successes of of your firm frankly and and one that was not without risk no doubt <laughs> obviously there's there's still much to be done i'm sure that you can help us understand the challenges that you're confronting but but the idea that uh, you know while other firms or other teams were as you say organizing themselves around the usual categories the idea that you would take landscape somehow as in-house capacity, but then identify real technical and scientific expertise. That's a very clear profile today, at least from the outside. What are the challenges? Obviously, I think there are many, many benefits. What are the challenges with that kind of an approach from your experience? The challenge really relates to perception and being able to frame a perception that's broader and and more open-ended. For instance, you can think of our product at Hunters Point South Waterfront Park with Erebus the Prime leading it largely as an infrastructure project. And then with TBA being able to treat it as a design project for a waterfront and actually benefit from the fact that there's robust budgets for infrastructure. And you could say that the shirt sleeves of that budget was the open space, and yet it was the foundational one that we were able to actually say that the infrastructural demands had design opportunities that were unforeseen opportunities through simply a lens of engineering. And so uh, you could say that that's both a challenge and an opportunity, which is to recognize that many of these developments have very large and robust infrastructure budgets. Uh, There's a notational desire to have design address the shirt sleeves that engage a community. But if we actually have the opportunity, which we did with Arup, to say this integrated vision is what's going to have legs and opportunities for both performance and expression that, you know, is allowing us to deal with sea level rise, you know, on the, you know, on the East River, but also create a community destination for a community that has yet to be invented with that whole development. So. That's really helpful, uh, Marion. I I think so even beyond being lead per se, the idea of moving beyond or reframing the juridical and legal and, you know, kind of the the titular frameworks, right? Moving beyond those. I think that's, again, it's such a clear profile and position when so many architects have identified the the primacy of architecture as, as its own work of art or the idea of the architect as lead, the kind of relative humility, if I could use that term, to think about, well, if 
thinking through landscape as a medium is supported or enabled by a larger infrastructural framework in which a firm like Arup, the engineer, could be lead. That strikes me as a kind of nimbleness uh, around those kind of legal and titular frameworks that's quite remarkable in my experience. In this discussion, we're kind of reminded of Hal Foster's great uh, line, which uh, said, you know, before you have multidisciplinary thinking, you have to have disciplinary thinking. And what has been apparent to us when we collaborate with really interesting experts or other artists or other landscape architects, other architects, um, you have to know what you're going to bring to the equation. And I think the idea of being everything to everybody is, is a mistake. And I think multidisciplinary projects mean that you have to have a, a series of folks who have extremely precise disciplinary agendas and uh, talents, uh, because otherwise you can't kind of create something and everything tends to kind of become uh, homogenous and normalized. So I think, you know, we do deeply respect the idea that, you know, we started out as architects, but our first project was actually a park. And we learned, I think, uh, to acquire a very high level of humility very, very quickly to understand there was a lot we didn't know and a lot that we could either teach ourselves or align ourselves with those whose work we respected. And I think that happened very early on in the process. And we have no illusions, I think, about trying to do everything and be everything to everybody. Um, I think that was something that, um, a lesson that I think has stuck with us uh, for over two decades. Marion Weiss, Michael Manfredi, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. It's been our pleasure and uh, a great way to think and uh, uh, carry on this conversation. Charles, thanks for inviting us to be part of what is a fantastic podcast series that you create on the American City. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.